Almighty and everlasting God, we pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here. We pray that our eyes will be open, that we will hear well, and our hearts will be ready to receive the good news that you are at work in creation. May the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was much younger, elementary school age, maybe middle school as well, it seemed like my parents were always taking me to a funeral. I was always being carted off to one of a family friend, maybe an extended relative, someone from the church that I grew up in, or someone for someone that my mom had known for decades from the town that she grew up in out in rural Virginia. I became accustomed to the rhythm of the funeral day, getting ready, heading off down the road in the car for probably no more than an hour or so, sitting through a service of death and resurrection, most likely in a United Methodist church, then the procession to the cemetery, the graveside committal, and then returning back to the church for a reception hosted by the United Methodist Women. At the graveside, there were always those awkward moments. Many of you know them. No one is in a rush to move. The funeral director has to coax family to sit, to sit in those banquet chairs and for friends to come up under the tent so they can be within earshot of the preacher. Of all those services I went to growing up, dozens of them, I don't recall a single one in which friends and family stayed for the entire burial. We robbed ourselves of the finality of loss, seeing the casket buried. With the grave service done, we were usually ushered back to the cars and we returned to the church. We were dining on country ham biscuits and what my sister and I affectionately called funeral fried chicken because it was served so frequently. We were dining while the grave digger was taking care of the burial. And then it happened in 2011 in February. I was the preacher standing at the front of the funeral tent. My feet firmly planted on that fake plastic green turf that they try and put out to make things seem a bit nicer than they really are to cover up the dirt that has been broken. I motioned for friends to draw clothes from the back of the tent so that they could hear me. The readings that day were from the Gospel of John, as they often are. Jesus, in his farewell address, tells the disciples that he is going ahead of them to prepare a room, a room among a mansion, as a sign of everlasting life for us. Jesus goes ahead to prepare a place so that we might follow. After I spoke the words of the committal, I expected folks to move, to begin that slow march back to their cars, and no one moved. The grave diggers came forward. They moved some of the flower arrangements out of the way, and still no one moved. So we waited. I cut my eyes over at the funeral director standing there in the corner thinking he would take control of the situation. Surely he was going to move folks before the burial started. He didn't. He did ask if the family wanted to depart. Everyone stayed seated. The grave diggers then knelt down 
And they placed the tiny casket down into the grave. And then they began shoveling the freshly turned dirt until the burial was complete. No one moved for quite some time as the wails of the family echoed at Harpeth Hills that morning. I would have done anything, anything in that moment to make that agony and that suffering and that grief for that family stop. And many times since I've stood with families at the graveside with some of your families who wait during those agonizing minutes for the completion of the burial. The agony and the suffering in those minutes has no rival. Nothing compares to it. Jesus was buried by a secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. It would not have been good for Joseph of Arimathea to make it known that he was following Jesus. He was a respected religious authority, and the people he kept company with weren't fond of Jesus. So he followed him in secret. And then there's Nicodemus, you might remember from the third chapter. He's the first one of Jesus' inquisitors. Comes to him by night and asks some questions, and this is where we hear about everlasting life. It's there that the 16th and 17th verses of John are couched in that conversation with Nicodemus. These very two unlikely men show up to bury Jesus. You heard that they brought burial spices, myrrh and aloe, and spices to anoint the body, to give Jesus a proper burial with dignity according to burial customs. But it's a surprise, or it should be, that Rome, that Pilate, the Roman governor, even gave these two men the opportunity to bury Jesus. It was not uncommon for Roman criminals to be left out for others to see as a, as a type of crowd control, to keep the revolutionary aspirations at bay. If you act up, you'll follow suit. That's the way Rome operated. In Rome's eyes, there couldn't be two kingdoms. There couldn't be Rome and Jesus' kingdom. There wasn't enough room. So when Mary went to the garden tomb, I imagine, since she didn't carry spices with her in John's account, she wasn't trying to anoint the body. I think she just went to grieve. She'd been at the foot of the cross at the crucifixion. She'd been there with other family and friends and disciples of Jesus. Perhaps in the turmoil of the crucifixion and the disciples fleeing to be behind locked rooms that weekend, that she wanted to stay out of the public eye, and so after several days had passed, she goes early in the day, before the sun had risen, under the cover of darkness, to the tomb, just to grieve, to have those moments of solitude, to not be on, just to hold the heaviness of that loss of a friend, a teacher, and her Lord. She gets to the garden and she sees that the stone is not where it should be, so she turns around, she rushes back to the disciples, to Peter and the beloved disciple, often known as John. At this juncture, this is not yet good news. Mary is implicitly reporting a grave robbery. It's the only logical thing. Either Rome took his body, or the Jewish authorities took his body. It would have made perfect sense. So Peter and the beloved disciple, they make haste. They make the hundred yard dash or so 
to the tomb to see for themselves, was Mary's story true? Was the tomb empty? They see the grave close, and they turn around and they, and they leave. The, the beloved disciple believed Mary. What had she told them? That the tomb was empty. Remember, she hasn't yet seen Jesus at this point. We have a grave robbery, not yet a resurrection. The angels speak to Mary and they say, Why are you weeping? What burdens have you brought into this house of worship this day? Like Mary, we're searching for the Lord, and grief and despair and turmoil often blind us from seeing how close Easter is. She tells the angel she's looking for Jesus, but if you've taken my Lord away, please tell me where he is so that I might go and get him. When she turns around, she sees the gardener, and the gardener asks her a similar question. What's the cause of your troubles? Mary tells the gardener. The Lord's body has been taken. I don't know where they have laid him, but if you have him, please, let me take him and care for him. When Jesus speaks her name, we have confirmation that Jesus is alive. He is not missing Now we have a resurrection story. Death couldn't keep him bound. He's alive. He's well. He's transformed into a glorified body that no longer knows the captivity of death. The whole story, all of creation turns in this moment when Jesus speaks, Mary. Jesus is back for his disciples. Death and terror and the crucifixion could not hold Jesus. The worst thing isn't the last thing. That's our Easter story. The worst thing, Good Friday, is never the last thing because of Easter. I can't emphasize enough to you that whatever condition of life you are in, whatever you carry in your bag of rocks, whatever grief, or shame, or despair, or hopelessness you carry in your bones, they will not have the final word in your life. They might for a season, and I can't make that go away for you, but they will not have the last word. If Jesus wasn't raised by the Spirit of God and brought into a new creation, then our hope is in vain. Death still has its sting. But if the Spirit of God raised Jesus Christ from death, then we have hope that we too will share in that newness. If we're raised with Christ, we can stand, we can walk through the Good Fridays that will come, and there will be some. But we will believe that the worst thing is not the last thing. We can live immersed in the grace of God, because Jesus Christ is victorious over the sting of death. That is the sole cause of our hope. I'm not an optimist. I don't, think, I don't think everything's just going to turn out all right. But I am hopeful. Because the reign of God is in our midst. It is at hand. The hope of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ still lives in the world. God has broken the power of sin and death. We've all been set free to live. Sometimes that's a hard thing to believe. Principalities and powers... Make it seem like somebody else is in control. And sometimes it's hard to see with eyes of faith. 
Sometimes the Easter story just doesn't seem true. And that's why we need the church, a community of faith in which we bear one another's burdens. We can hold one another's faith when we're blinded by our own tears. That's why we come to the table, to the sacrament, to the Eucharist, to Holy Communion. The sacraments might seem like child's play to the world, breaking bread and splashing in water. But when we look with eyes of faith, when we listen with ears of hope and broken bread and a cup poured, we discover Mary's gospel, the story that she reported back to the disciples locked behind closed doors. We've seen the Lord. That's the Easter witness. We dare to imagine a different world, a world not imprisoned by the powers of sin and death and evil, but set free for justice, for love, and for peace. When you depart from this place this morning, my prayer for you is this, that you carry the hope of the resurrection with you because you're set free to love justice, to enact mercy, to love recklessly, and to imitate the love of God in Jesus Christ in the world. It's only through an empty tomb and a risen Savior that we have the strength and the resilience to walk through the Good Fridays to come. Because the tomb is empty, our mourning will turn to joy in time. Our tears will be wiped away. Suffering will one day be no more. And we'll hear the voice of the Lord saying, Behold, I'm making all things new. The resurrection is our hope. It's our only hope. So when you go forth, I hope you will be singing hallelujahs and testifying like Mary has. Surely we have seen the Lord this day. Christ is risen, and the church said, Christ is risen indeed. Bless you in the name of the Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.